runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 296 with guest Tom Cantor, recorded Tuesday, November 20th, 2012. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. I'm on my Thanksgiving break from the .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2012 launch road trip, although I suspect by the time you hear this show, the whole tour will be over. Uh, it's been really fun being able to fit in my Run As Radio episodes in and amongst just talking about DevOps and Windows 8 and all the craziness of driving across the U.S. twice. But that's not our conversation for today. Today's conversation, I'm talking to Tom Cantor, and he's a dedicated senior architect with applied skills in business and IT strategy alignment, business process innovation, tactical project planning and delivery. He's skilled in integrating systems during and after mergers and acquisitions, and his expertise includes multiple ERP application suites, SOA strategy and governance, as well as web application development. And he specializes in healthcare, including HIPAA 4010 and 5010, retail and financial systems integration. Welcome, Tom. Uh, so you're an architect and you're on an IT oriented show. So I will be wearing my IT hat and saying, so how do we actually build that on a repeated basis? <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I'll try to answer that as best as I can. Uh, we're going to dig into healthcare. And of course, there's a huge revolution going in healthcare right now because of recent uh, policies passed by the U.S. government. Yes, there is. Uh, the ACA um, uh was ratified and uh, is uh, now part of our federal law, mm-hmm. and that's going to have a huge impact on uh, at the top and at the bottom of the IT infrastructure from an architectural viewpoint uh, all the way to uh, actual implementation. So it's going to have a tremendous impact, and uh, that's what I've been focused on the last eight years mm-hmm. in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And and I've just as a caveat right off the bat, I am a Canadian. So for me, what you guys do down there, you crazy. Like, wow. You know, I, I, I when folks ask me about the relationship between Canada and the US, say we are brothers. Occasionally they are my idiot brothers. And in healthcare, I think you guys have gone kind of nuts. But uh, I don't know. Is this, uh, I mean, there's one side of this, which is the, is this better? Is this worse? And so forth. And then we really should just get into the essence of it, which is what do you have to do? On the technology side to deal with this change, yes, and so much, so much there. Well, I believe we are on a path to improve that. Um, Certainly, that seems to be everyone's intent. Yes, I think everybody that has touched uh, this system in one way or another has had the intent of making things better. Mm-hmm. And overall, as uh, in healthcare in general, we are better than we were a hundred years ago. Joe, yeah, uh, we well. made tremendous progress. Not a lot of deaths by cholera in the U.S. these days, or or influenza pandemics. Yes, and I, it appears that we're on the verge of actually being able to treat on the influenza side, so, yeah. uh, where, or at least predict fairly well. So we made a lot of progress, uh, uh, but uh, you know the system has grown uh, uh, in small pieces from bug, within uh, buggy days to. Uh, where we're at today with large uh, 
hospitals and healthcare organizations and the payer process. So it's, it's uh, gone from very simple to a very complex system. Now, should we... I've always had the sense, and I've only bumped against the healthcare industry a few times in the U.S., that the information systems in healthcare are somewhat archaic. I believe, uh, again, it's it's like healthcare. Uh, everybody who's had a hand in it has had every intent uh, on making things better. Um, but uh, as a business, you have to offset uh, fundamental investment versus uh, return on that investment. Um, and... Uh, at times, I think healthcare needs to be prodded along a little, yep. especially on the payment side. And that's, that's what we see with the ACA. I mean, at the same time, you talk about like, uh, Massachusetts, the whole MUMP system was one of the leading edge software systems going back to the sixties and seventies. Like, you know, the need for software in healthcare drove the industry forward at one point. It did. And, uh, MUMPs is a great, at, at the low level, a uh, very early uh, database engine, a non-relational database engine, uh, mm-hmm. still running in many uh, on the provider side, healthcare organizations, uh, and uh, generator of the initial HL7 specification was driven by uh, the MUMPS development. All right. When we're using, you're careful with your terms here, so I you know recognize you. You're talking about providers. And what's the providers are, are they hospitals or, or doctors? What is a provider exactly? A provider is anybody that, uh, provides healthcare to you directly. Okay. And that includes everything from the arrival of an ambulance, uh, and an ambulance can provide up to 60 different procedures, mm-hmm. uh, uh, all the way to a hospital and a heart surgeon who is uh, uh, doing heart surgery on you at that time. So it's that anybody who touches you and provides that right. uh, service to you. Yep. And, you and, and right down to your good old-fashioned GP prescribing some antibiotics for an ear infection. Yep. Yeah. If they if they provide health care to you, then they are a provider. Okay. On the other side, of course, is the payer side, um, and that is anybody who pays uh, for that service the provider presents. And that uh, is obviously not company. just the patient and not just the government. That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, some of my regional hairs are Providence, Regents, uh, and, and uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, of course, in mm-hmm. every state, uh, and uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Right. So, and these are not, and then they're not just insurance companies either. They're more complicated than that. Yes. Uh, well, uh, for instance, Kaiser Permanente uh, is, is a provider and a payer and a pharmacy uh, all <laughs> in one. Uh, they're a very large organization. I did uh, some work for them. Uh, Brian Lostgen and I did the uh, BizTalk ESB for them back on BizTalk Server 2004. Wow. So I get a little sense of their size. Yes. Yeah, and I guess... When we tar- start thinking in terms of architectures for these kinds of distributed systems where you have many different payers, many different providers, and the patients, that's uh, a lot of data flow, a lot of disparate systems that have to connect together. At Kaiser Permanente, I estimated that they had uh, 37,000 different versions of the HL7 messaging uh, structure. Um, it was a large scale effort to manage that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the need for something like an ESB there. 
the first uh, ESP built on BizTalk. And in, and is were you building an ESB because of the transactional velocity or because of the connectivity requirements? Uh, uh, the purpose was the connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, they were on the extreme edge point of uh, interconnected systems. Um, a diagram, I imagine, of their system would have been the classic spaghetti diagram where every system talks to every other system directly. Right. And it was unmanageable. Yes. But are they always known endpoints? Are you invariably, everybody knows who everybody else is. Like they, there's a, you know, there's always a sense that a service bus where you could actually go out and make a request saying, Hey, I'm looking for something that can serve this. And any number of endpoints could respond from any number of different service providers. Discoverability. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, any ESB uh, requires as an element of it uh, discoverability of the endpoints. Um, and that almost seems like it's a bolt-on service to most ESBs. Uh, it's essential, but uh, something you can plug in and provide via different ways. Because at the end of the day, you have attributes of properties that you describe that you want that service to provide, SLA, uh, these types of endpoints and um, these types of services, and then uh, uh, the uh, the lookup service then provides a list of potential candidates. Right, but generally, all of those are covered under some kind of service level agreement and contract anyway. So they're, for, you know, by the business definition, they are known endpoints. Mm-hmm. They are known endpoints. Um, where I'm driven to in the in this area of the conversation is um, large-scale organizations, I don't believe always endpoints are designed with the the scope of audience. If someone has a right. good idea, yep, and they tell other people about it, i.e. the discovery service is via word of mouth, um, it goes service viral, yep. and uh, suddenly you're Laptop uh, is providing uh, uh, service to fifty thousand endpoints. <laughs> uh oh. But I, I think I, I putting another spin on your point. The odds of everyone who's needing to build software to to use that endpoint reading the contracts and know they're out there pretty low. Discoverability basically facilitates that. You know, I can find these things without having to go and ask everyone. What do we own? Who do we talk to? That's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the struggle with discoverability is that does the person believe that this is something relevant to multiple needs? Uh, so they may not enter into the, the uh, discovery engine um, or may not attribute it deeply. So that, that can be, I think, the difficult part. How do, It's not just discovery then the discovery service being there. It's the, does it accurately describe all the useful, discoverable endpoints. Right. Where in my enterprise IT hack, because clearly we're playing in an enterprise IT realm, I'm yes. thinking about how I manage this infrastructure so that the developers don't tend to roll their own of everything, that they tend to use the services that exist. Uh, so governance. Mm-hmm. So how do I... How do I uh... The problem is uh, in the IT uh, infrastructure environment, People like to write code. They want to be known for the code that they're writing. Sure. Yes. And so, and I want to encourage uh, people to be 
creative, come up with innovative solutions, um, and uh, provide them as a service to other people. But what you're saying is very relevant. Have they written well? Are they providing a service that hasn't already been done? Is it generationally different? Does it make some big leap in a gap of functionality that improves it marketably? Uh, and uh, uh, I was just reading a quote the other day. Um, the best line of code ever written for a customer is one that wasn't written because they didn't need it. Right. So uh, that's, of course, a struggle. Governance is a struggle. It's a balance between uh, unreigned uh, chaos uh, and uh, monolithic management. And uh, you have to draw that dial across. And part of it is leading the, the developers to think and look forward and draw their vision out so that their small kernel of brilliance uh, can be used in many different ways. Mm-hmm. And so you want to encourage that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, 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 the very first HL7 system I communicated with, the developer wrote a service endpoint, web service endpoint, uh, that was single-threaded. Uh, and uh, obviously that some governance should have been applied there because it didn't handle uh, the 50,000 messages a day we needed to send through it. Right. <laughs> but you don't find that out until you try and ship 50,000 to it. No, you don't. Usually the second day of production. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Tested just fine. But and now you're talking about trying to, you know, in the context of governance, these are overall architectural decisions. Here's how I need you to design your services. They have to have right. certain characteristics. Yes. And have you fully tested. Mm-hmm. So... Two of the areas that we are coming up against now, of course, is we are now, with the ACA, we're now talking about enterprise services at the federal level right? to some degree. The scale factor now becomes uh, two orders of magnitude. Wow. So you're, you're now, you've got your service bus within your given uh, payer organization, but you're needing to plug into the federal government as well? Well, um, 19 states, I believe, uh, I may have the exact number incorrect, but it's mm-hmm. in that neighborhood of somewhere between 13 and 19 states, have uh, opted for uh, Category B. Category B meaning um, they're choosing to forego constructing their own um, health uh, information exchange. In other words, the, the uh, place where you can go and buy insurance from, right. uh, the federally mandated uh, insurance. Um, and so it means that the federal government is now up to carrying that federally mandated exchange for those states. Let's, let's call it 15 okay. for a round number. So that's a significant portion. Uh, uh, and on top of that, of course, the states that are doing it, currently there are not many exchanges that are in that scale factor uh, either, uh, which is one order of magnitude above a, a large scale um, uh, payer like uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're we're looking at scale factor. You have to think in the terms of uh, population of those fifteen states are probably uh, some of them are some of the smaller states, which probably population states, which probably 
determines why they're choosing to let the federal government do that. Right. Probably 50 million between the 15 states. Now, isn't another part of the ACA there's a larger participation by the individual as well? Uh, yes, there's the mandated, um, you have to buy the insurance and pay for it. And, um, is that uh, quite where you're going or were you going? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of is on on one hand, you've, you've got an increase in size on the back end, but don't you also have a larger diversity of client? I've got to think life's pretty easy if you're only dealing with a half a dozen, uh, healthcare and insurance companies when you're, when, when you're the, uh, the health provider. But now if there's more and more, patient participation, the complexity of the system is going to go up dramatically. Um, certainly, although, well, the theory is, according to that, and I believe it to be true, is there is a, a economy of scale mm-hmm. in that, hopefully. Um, there are only so many addresses uh, uh, with the street name Main, uh, <laughs> Main Street. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a, a second order, a third order, um, a normalization of the combined database might gain some factor there. And also, um, a lot of the payers have grown through acquisition. Right. And there, I know one large, uh, payer on the East Coast, um, and uh, during our discovery with them for their upgrade to 5010, they stated that they had 19 different payment systems internally. So on one hand, what you're saying, you know, as order of magnitude from the personnel or the people who are interacting with the system is going to go up. But on the other hand, I think that that will finally drive some of the economy of consolidation of those internal systems. There's no system that I've interacted with it does not have multiple payment systems internally. Right. Uh, and some of them are still written in COBOL, running on mainframes, uh, which they pay claims accurately, which is the measure of the success of the system, although they may be hard to maintain. Uh, and on the other end of the scale, some of them are modern uh, pre- um, uh, commercial systems that are readily available and work just great also. But you have at least two, and in some cases, upwards of 20 payment systems, and they probably should be consolidated. Man. And then and there's all the companies involved, too, because you're, generally speaking, your healthcare is tied in with the, the individual companies. Right. Um, yes, absolutely. And they want to not lose their current customers, uh, go onto the uh, exchange and be as a recognized vendor on the exchange. Right. And... If now all of those uh, patients are now a ready market because healthcare is mandated for them, they want to uh, get that revenue. Right. Yeah. And it, it gets another challenge of this is it is a business. It is a business. Yes. And so you've got to. Sort Some of, are nonprofit, but they still have to pay salaries yeah. and so on and so forth. So, still people yeah, working there. There's absolutely. still bills to be paid. They still go broke. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> Important thing to remember, right? It's kind of scary, but it's true. It's true. It's true. Well, I think this will make it a little more um, uniform. If an insurance company does go broke, um, there certainly be ample choices right. afterwards for yeah. more diversity. Do. There, more diversity. Uh, now, 
heaven forbid we get into a compliance discussion, but it almost can't avoid it at some point. But I want to start with it in the context of the cloud, because it seems like as soon as we're going to talk about these kinds of scales, that the cloud's the way to go. But is it even uh, an option in healthcare? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, the big one that everyone must comply with, of course, is the HIPAA regulation right. as far as patient security. Um, and there are 19 elements in your healthcare record that are considered uh, under control of the HIPAA regulations uh, today. Um, and the primary thing that the HIPAA regulations delineate are who falls under the purview of the HIPAA standard, mm -hmm. and then once they're under that purview, how they control their interaction with other partners and make sure that they comply with the, the data that they're transferring with them that falls under the HIPAA standard. So... Primarily, the target of the HIPAA standard is the payer market, um, and uh, when a payer falls under that, they follow the standards, but they also have to have, and this is where the cloud comes into relevance, is a, a BAA, Business Associate Agreement. What that means is that uh, you have explained to that other business, the requirements of the HIPAA regulations, and they agree to abide by them. Right. And that, for instance, some clouds like uh, Azure, um, that has uh, become, they have complied with the BAA requirements uh, just a short while ago. So that first hurdle for HIPAA for the payer side has been overcome. So if you were a payer and you engage with something like Microsoft Azure, um, you can demonstrate that they have a BAA and they can comply with your uh, requirements and they're a complying entity. Yeah, and this sounds like the same kind of ratings we have around credit card handling compliance, SPAA, and, and stuff like that, right? Like it, yeah. It's the same sort of thing. You are rated. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We are rated. It's pretty tough. Uh I appreciate any cloud enterprise that is willing to step up the plate because it's a significant financial investment up front, um, and it's also a significant commitment. Heaven forbid uh, that any cloud entity was to fail and release private healthcare yes, information. Yes, that would be bad. Yes. But we are talking about the biggest players, right? I mean, who's compliant? Beyond, because when, I, when folks talk about cloud infrastructure, they talk about Amazon. Uh, Microsoft, and then what's after that? Rackspace? Rackspace. Uh, none are coming to mind, right. although uh, I, I don't know. I don't have an exhaustive list. That would be an interesting article. I sure. will look that up and blog it. Just to do, uh, and do you know who's complying off the top of your head? Uh, Microsoft. Right. So the Azure guys have taken this on. They have. Um, uh, the... I really respect that they did. It's a it's a big leap, um, and I respect the fact that any organization like this recognizes well financially it's a good move for them, but also too, um, healthcare matters. Oh, for sure. Yes. So it, it's a big it's a big step. Uh, 
it is funny. I live here in Seattle within five miles of both Microsoft and Amazon. Right. Uh, it's a small world. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, importance of being compliant, it opens up, again, it's a good step in the right, in the direction of incenting payers to move in the cloud space and finally realize some of the large-scale IT infrastructure advantages that they can get yeah. out, of, out of that move. Now, there is also an argument to be said that at very, very large-scale organizations can actually run similar-style cloud infrastructure themselves at a lower cost. They could, and I always return to the question of what is what business are they in? Right. What is it they do best? And I believe... Payers, what they do best is manage healthcare claims, not cloud services. Right. Not running infrastructure. Not running infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it comes to the economy of scale. And it is at that scale where you start making some significant uh, uh, value gain mm -hmm. in, in that. Yeah, the question is, is that infra, is this infrastructure a unique competitive factor to that organization? Yes. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the Blue Cross Blue Shield organization, um, they themselves demonstrate some of the value of economy of scale because they have uh, standards internally. They're in every state. Right. They, they have certain standards that uh, go above and beyond the HIPAA standard themselves. Uh, and uh, that's an example. Mm-hmm. And I, and I do wrestle in general with the idea of th this being a competitive space just because it doesn't feel to me like healthcare is something you can really compete over. It's a, not an optional product. It becomes a, uh, now it becomes a service and, um, cost differentiator. If I can provide more services, uh, in other words, I can cover more um, types of healthcare claims, uh, then uh, I would be more competitive in that space to some degree. There might right. be ones that I can foresee where some peers specialize in cancer. Mm -hmm. That they may say, we have a very aggressive plan um, and they're very good at at proactively monitoring cancer, and they have good relationships with uh, uh, the large-scale uh, cancer treatment centers. Maybe something like that. That would be an interesting differentiator. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm trying to think how I carry this learnings out to everyone else. I mean, healthcare is not entirely unique set of problems. This is just a large-scale system problem with significant regulation, uh, needed to communicate along a lot of disparate systems. Uh, you know, what do we really carry out of this that we could to apply to all sorts of industry? Well, taking pause for a second, the 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 idea here is it's a saturated market. Right. All markets eventually become saturated yes. markets. So, can we learn from this how to operate uh, profitably in a saturated market space? Mm -hmm. Which means efficiency uh, is king. Efficiency is king. Uh, Yes, understanding your numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think a comparison suddenly came to mind, which is the search engine 
market. Uh, how do I, how do I differentiate my ad revenue, my ad creation differently than the other search engines? You've got to know the numbers in detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Google comes to mind where they did a very, very, very in-depth modeling and analysis. So companies that do that, pay attention to the numbers, understand what your market is, concentrate on your core, find out what your differentiator is in that market space, yeah. do the best at it, and also look for ways to change the market uh, in your favor occasionally. Uh, take, for instance, uh, insurance provider uh, in the area, payer in the area here in the Seattle area, came up with a program called Know Your Numbers. Right. And they proactively send you out, your cholesterol is a little high, uh, here are things that you can do to do better at it. Mm-hmm. The insurance company actually is the nexus of healthcare information about you because you send all of your information about your insurance sure. through them. They, the So... If you know your market and you're seeing a segment of the market in a special way, how can you take advantage of that? I mean, and it's an interesting part of this overall conversation, actually, is this idea that, you know, interacting with your customer before your customer needs to interact with you. You know, we talk about it as a preventative healthcare, but you could also apply this to, say, you know, automobile maintenance or, or housing. There's all kinds of things where if we actually understand our customers extremely well, we start anticipating their needs, we ultimately reduce costs for our customers, make them more attached to us. Yes, reduce costs and and gain that loyalty, that brand loyalty that mm-hmm. you want underlying that. And yeah, exactly. It's funny because both of those that you mentioned right there are examples of already saturated markets. Right. That, yeah, deeply saturated markets. So what is the non-saturated market? Cloud services. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. How can I proactively reach out and uh, uh, provide not only just the service the customer wants, the service they never envisioned they would want. Yeah, they didn't may not realize. And it really comes down for us understanding the customer better than they understand themselves. They say, hey, you're using our infrastructure this particular way, and you could be doing it this way and getting better results for a lower cost. Or on the converse, observing somebody who's using it in such a way that suddenly uh, you realize they're doing a very good thing. Mm-hmm. And partnering with them and drawing them in and saying, this is a good example of how to do things. Which I think everybody should be doing it this way. Absolutely. So it's a differentiator. Again, it always boils down to the core business model is, you know, optimize your money flow, uh, differentiate yourself in the market, gain uh, brand loyalty, and build yourself up. Sorry, it's the... Uh, the retail part of my uh, background yeah, that's coming that's out, flashed out there. That. But, you know, you, and you put this in an interesting context. Is an awful lot of what makes this possible is there, our ability to consolidate a ton of data across these systems. And that has to be driven by IT. You know, we, we can actually get our heads out of creating users and modifying indexes and start looking at how we consolidate this large group of information. We provide huge value back to our organization. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Cloud services, in my opinion, Virtualization and cloud services is a solution to a problem um, that uh, infrastructure has been fighting with for a long time, mm-hmm. and that is how do I efficiently use the services that I have? Am I using it efficiently? Yeah. And at some point, you say, throw your hands up in the air and go, I have no idea, and I'm just going to shove it off on somebody else. 
Absolutely. And yeah, that's where virtualization came out. Well, we'll just throw all the servers onto one big machine mm-hmm. and we'll optimize our uh, performance that way. Or we'll push all our services up there in the cloud and we'll just pay a, a price based on our usage of it. Right. And especially when you have these surge usages, but you also get into one of the challenges you have when you start doing experiments and analytics like this is you don't have the infrastructure. The fact that you can light it up as a test in the cloud, mm-hmm. assign an immediate cost to it as well, and then spin it back down if it's not getting you the results you want. So it just lends itself to these really advanced experimentations that open up new business opportunities. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It is, you're absolutely right. Uh, the scale factor inside of the IT infrastructure, and that's something uh, I found interesting a few years ago was how they talked about the granularity of increasing your capacity in your service process. Um, basically, your granularity measure was adding physical machines. Right. And what was the cost to spin up an extra machine? What did it take to build it? And that became your focus of your IT team. Sure. Was building servers fast. Uh, this way, you can... And so there was a high cost, to, as you're saying, to that experiment. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's an interesting problem. And we, used to right. focus, I, I, and we used to be so focused on this total cost of ownership. And now, while that number is still somewhat relevant, we've mitigated it. You've gotten away from capital costs and into direct expenditure. And, and now you can focus on other things. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I just recall a particular project where we needed... 12 SQL servers and eight BizTalk servers be spun out before Christmas. Ouch. We managed to get that, yeah, we managed to get that done in June. <laughs> Missed it by that much. Just that bit. But that was a, that was a big, and it, uh, the cost there was, I mean, we were very efficient. We did everything we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, the on-site team members, um, had other projects they were doing, and we, we did documentation and we worked through some, uh, development stuff, but, Still, it would have been better to have it. Well, and it's also the shift in the model. You, The fact that you knew those two numbers, 12 SQL servers and 8 BizTalk servers, speaks to a hell of a lot of planning. The fact that you can mm. just spin them up as you need them, and if you don't need them, spin them back down, so that you don't have to pre-compute, which is almost an uncomputable number, but rather right. look at demand as it comes and elastically adjust, it, you get to move so much faster. It occurs to me that you're moving away from the um, the uh, single point of failure. The reason that took so long is they ran out of the HBA cable in the data center. <laughs> or or power, the- or cooling, or rack space. Right. And as opposed in the model we're talking about with the cloud services approach, it's they're managing that. That's their yeah. entire job. Not your problem. Not your problem. Yep. Yep, absolutely. It is. It was funny. It, uh, that was such a big, and that alone pushed us out three months. So to eliminate that from that variable, that uncontrolled, uh, another customer of ours, a provider, um, their data center was flooded in Sandy. Right. They had a data plan, a recovery plan, and so on and so forth. They just couldn't get there to turn the switches. Because <laughs> it was underwater. It was literally underwater. Yeah. 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 And suddenly, if they were in the cloud, it would have been an issue. No. Uh, they would have shifted the load over to the West Coast data center. The latency would have been higher. But yeah. We would have kept operating. 
but it kept operating. Yes. Well, Tom, we're just about out of time. Any final words, places people should be looking when they start to think about some of these uh, large-scale systems? Um, there are a lot of leaders in this area. Um, I've mentioned, of course, Brian Lodzian, a good friend of mine for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, uh, Microsoft is growing uh, tremendously in this area. Um, it is, you know, I'll admit that uh, it is the area that I spend a lot of time in, um, and uh, it's uh, got a lot of opportunity. Um, I would follow, um, and I would ignore the rhetoric, uh, but simply follow the technology of the uh, changes that are occurring uh, at three levels. We just finished the HIPAA 5010 migration, which is the version change of the messaging system for mm-hmm. the uh, payers. Um, the HL7 environment, which is the healthcare level language seven, which is the, the protocol that is talked every day between the data centers and back end is going through some fairly large changes. Um, and of course the ACA, the American Accountability Care Act, uh, system, uh, my estimates are, um, offhand, uh, in the neighborhood of about a $2 billion change in the wow. IT infrastructure. So there's a room for uh, uh, us in the IT land mm-hmm. to make some big changes and actually get our maybe we get rid of some of the COBOL systems. <laughs> but it's also first round too. You know, this is just the first wave to, to implement to be compliant. Next will come optimizing, actually looking how things are being used and saying how do we take advantage of this. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Far well, from Richard, done. Uh, far from done. Uh, I appreciate you bringing me on. You bet. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.